The last couple of years have seen huge changes in Australian society. Uh, It seems like the Christian church has been losing ground all over the place. Uh, Scripture classes removed in Victoria, school chaplaincy program under attack in Canberra, abortion restrictions weakened, euthanasia becoming more accepted, same-sex marriage legalised, LGBT activists demanding even more, gender fluidity being celebrated and encouraged. But it's what's behind that that's uh, something different altogether. It's not gender politics. Uh, It's not a new atheism. It's not even secular humanism, I don't think. Uh, Behind all of these things is self-determinism. People feel they have the right to do whatever they want. They have a moral responsibility to express who they are. And it's unacceptable for someone, for anyone, to tell them that they're wrong or to restrict them in any way. Uh, Glenn Harrison, in his book A Better Story God, Sex and Human Flourishing, says that in Western society, radical, expressive individualism is the dominant way of thinking and acting. Radical, expressive individualism. We don't even realise it, but we accept, without thought or question, people's right to live out this statement. I'm an individual. My true self must be known and expressed. I have the right to do and be whatever I want and no one has the right to challenge that sovereignty. It's not just the young, it's not just the radicals. Uh, Harrison says uh, people have grabbed the power of story and this radical individualism, is, it's now the plot line of almost every movie and TV show and novel. The individual who stands up for himself and expresses who he really is and we all cheer. Where did it come from? Well, sociologists sort of argue about it, about its beginning, but probably, from what I can tell, it it was back in the the flower power sexual revolution of the 60s. Uh, Perhaps a widespread use of motor cars as well that people thought I can do and be whatever I want, I can travel wherever I want. But it's now so widespread that we don't even realise it. And we can see the attraction, can't we? It's an incredibly seductive idea that you control your own destiny. You can have what you want. You don't have to depend on anyone. You don't have to answer to anyone. You don't have to be responsible to anyone. It's all about you. You determine right and wrong. You determine your future. And here's where that mindset of our age clashes with the teaching of the Bible, of course, because self-determination, self-determinism is making yourself God, isn't it? It's thinking that you control your destiny when the reality is, of course, God controls your destiny and he's the one who has the right to tell you how to live. It's not you at all. We are self-made creatures Uh, We are not self-made creatures, we're God-made creatures. Now, in in some senses, Jacob was well ahead of his time because he would have fitted right in today. Uh, He wanted to be a self-made man. Jacob wanted to be a self-made man. 
This morning we're going to follow 20 years in 20 minutes in the life of the self-made man. From rags to riches, through ups and downs, someone who has plans, who puts them into place, who expresses himself and watch out anyone who gets in his way and he seems to end up with exactly what he wants. But he also learns some lessons and in the end we and he find that despite all his plans and schemes he's not a self-made man at all. He's a God-made man. Exactly what God had been promising Jacob and his family for more than a century. Uh, last time we looked at Joseph a couple of months ago, uh, sorry, uh, at Jacob a couple of months ago, he dressed up like his older brother. He cheated his way into his father's blessing. His brother wants to kill him. And so we pick up the story in Genesis 28, verse 10. He's on the run. He's headed for his un- uncle Laban. Verse 11, he stops for the night by the side of the road. He grabs a rock for a pillow. It's a pretty sorry scene when you think about it, isn't it? He's left everything behind, all the blessings that have come to this precious family in God's sight and it's come down to this, a brother who wants him dead, he's camped by the side of the road with nothing, with a pillow that feels as hard as a rock because, well, it is a rock. The only place he can go from here is up. But then he has a dream, verse 12, of a stairway reaching all the way from heaven to earth. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it and there above it or perhaps beside it stood the Lord. Heaven and earth are connected and here's Jacob right at the manhole into the ceiling which is heaven. The front doorstep where the angels come and go. Jacob gets an insight into the way the world works that God is actively involved with his angelic messengers busy doing his will, up and down and up and down. God is involved. And as God speaks, Jacob's told that this important place will one day be his because God will give it to him. And all the promises of Abraham are restated. They should be sounding pretty familiar to us by now, but this time for Jacob. Verse 16, Jacob wakes up in awe of where he's been lying and he turns his pillow up on its end uh, as a place marker and he renames it Bethel, the house of God, because he's been sleeping on the front doorstep without knowing. And then he makes a vow in verse 20 and he says, If God's with me so I can make it back to Dad's place in one place, uh, in one piece, then he'll be my God. Moving on to chapter 29, he's back on the road, he comes to the land of his uncle Laban and there's a crowd of shepherds around a well. They know his uncle. What do you know, verse 6, here comes his cousin Rachel with the sheep. Cue the romantic music. And when Jacob sees the gorgeous Rachel, he's smitten. And then in verse 10, something that uh, blokes for the last 3,000 years have copied, they try a muscular uh, gesture to try and impress the female. He heaves the stone away from the mouth of the well and he waters the sheep. Verse 12 to 14, Dad Laban invites him home, which one commentator says is like a spider inviting a fly into its web. Now here's where I want you to look for payback. Some people might call it karma, but it's really God, the judge, bringing some justice, teaching Jacob some humility. Humility. 
Laban's got two daughters, Leah, the older one, according to verse 17. She's not as good looking as Rachel, who's lovely in form and beautiful. Uh, Laban says, you've been working for me. Tell me what your wages should be. Jacob knows exactly what he wants from the first moment he saw her. And he says, verse 18, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. In verse 19, Laban gives an answer that's not really definite one way or another. He says, I suppose it's better I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. Which is not really a yes at all, is it? Jacob doesn't seem to notice because he's blinded with love. Uh, Verse 20, he serves for seven years to get Rachel, but it seems like only a few days. Oh. So verse 22, fast forward to the wedding, the party goes well into the night and Laban's about to pull a switch, a swifty. It's hard to imagine how it could work. I can only think there's a mixture of wine and darkness and lots of veils. But the fact is Jacob wakes up in the morning and verse 25 says, there's Leah. The Hebrew literally says, and it was morning, and behold, Leah. The sisters have been switched. I mean, how cruel to pull a trick like that, to fool someone in the dark by switching the children around, the older instead of the younger. Of course, that's what Jacob did with his dad and Esau. But Jacob doesn't see the irony. He's not smiling, he's furious. What have you done to me? I've served you for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? Why have you deceived me? It's what Esau accused Jacob of. But Jacob, who switched the younger for the older himself, gets put firmly in his place. Laban says, verse 27, keep this one and I'll throw the other one in with the deal, just work for another seven years. And Jacob agrees, the self-made man, who's always wanted to jump the queue and now it's going to cost him another seven years. And he ends up with two wives instead of the one he most wanted as well as two concubines, two servant girls as well. And so the seeds are sown for another generation of family favouritism. Remember Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau and the mess that that was. Well, verse 30, we're told, Jacob lay with Rachel also and he loved Rachel more. And the next section, meet the kids, the next section from uh, uh, verse 29-31 through chapter 30 is a sorry tale of what happens when you play favourites like that. Leah, the unloved wife, Rachel, the barren one. We'll skip through it with just one comment. It seems like a baby-making competition. Both wives trying to vie for the affection of their husband, including throwing in their handmaids at Jacob as a bonus. And by chapter 30, verse 24, there are 12 sons and at least one daughter Uh, And the twelve sons go on to make up the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. Perhaps not the happiest mob, but they are growing. Now at this point Jacob decides it's time to leave Laban and head home because after all it's home, which is the land God's promised, not where he's living at the moment. Laban tries to change his mind, not because of love, mind you, it's just greed. He says in verse 27 of chapter 30, I want you to stay because I've learned by divination that the Lord, the God of Israel, has blessed me because of you. 
Except it's interesting, Jacob's answer seems to imply that he thinks it's more about Jacob and a little less about God. Have a look at verse 29 of chapter 30. Jacob says, You know how I have worked for you and how your livestock have fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I've been. But now I want to do something for myself. Now that pretty much sums up Jacob, I think. The self-made man. I'm in charge. I want to determine my future. And here's his plan, verse 32. We'll split the flocks. Just give me the spotted, speckled, dark lambs. You can take the white, nice, pure, clean ones. And I'll build a herd that way. (coughs) Now we should know by now that Laban can't be trusted, but neither can Jacob. They sort of deserve each other in a way. Uh, But watch this, verse 34. Laban says, I agree, let it be as you've said. You take the patchy ones, I'll take the plain ones. But then as soon as the words are out of his mouth, verse 35, he sends his sons to take all the speckled ones to a paddock three days' journey away. So when Jacob goes looking for speckled ones, he can't find any. Well, it's at this point you get some very curious details about Jacob's selective breeding program. Verse 37 to 42, it's a step-by-step description of how Jacob's going to make more spotted sheep by mating them in front of tree branches that have had bits of bark ripped off them to make them dapple. I don't know what's going on. It's a bit like an early form of cognitive behavioural therapy or something, I think. You know, brainwash the sheep into giving birth to patchy lambs by looking at patchy tree branches. Now, if that works, can I suggest you check the sort of wallpaper that you've got in your bedroom? But it's kind of a combination of superstition and smarts, of science mixed with magic, because as well as the spotted branch method, there's some selective breeding of strong ones going on as well. That's in verse 41. So that in the end, by Jacob's plotting, the weak white animals go to Laban, but the strong dappled ones go to Jacob. Years pass and by verse 43 the self-made man, Jacob, has grown extremely prosperous. At which point it finally is time to go home. He's been there 20 long years now and God has spoken to him again and commanded him, go back to the land of your fathers and I will be with you. Chapter 31, verse 3. And I wonder if there is a reminder of to Jacob of why he's really prospered because he finally seems to have worked something out at least. Have a look at how he answers in verse 4 of chapter 31. It's time to go. It's God who's prospered me. Verse uh, verse 5, he's been with me. Verse 6, he hasn't allowed Laban to harm me. Or down to verse 12, it wasn't my speckled bits of wood after all. God spoke to me in a dream and said, have a look. Look up and see the goats, a speckled, spotted and streaked. I've seen how Laban's treated you and I've made it that way. In other words, it's not your magic, it's not your trickery, it's not your cleverness, it's 
It's not your schemes, it's my blessing. It's me keeping my promise. And Jacob finally seems to realise it. And he obeys God and he heads home. But some leopards don't change their spots. Verse 20, he sneaks off without saying goodbye. He's, he's fled his home to come to Laban and now he's fleeing Laban and heading home. Wherever he goes, he seems to be on the run. He deceives Esau and has to leave. Now he's deceived Laban and has to leave and he's heading back to Esau who last time he heard wants to kill him. And if we jump into chapter 32, it, I guess it's no surprise, Jacob's afraid. He's sending messengers. <laughs> he's sending gifts to his brother. Uh, verse 6, he hears that Esau is coming out to meet him with 400 men. Now what do you expect? It's the lynching party, surely. It seems like the self-made man has finally run out of plans. His bag of tricks is empty. Uh, Verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divides the people with him into two groups and the animals as well. He's not putting all his eggs in one basket. He's cutting his losses. Uh, If Esau attacks, at least part of his... Uh, possessions and family will survive. He's resigned to at least only losing half. But then in verses 9 to 12 he prays and I wonder if we finally get to the point that we've been waiting for where Jacob finally understands. You can't be a self-made man and pray. You can't do the two They don't work together. You can't be a self-made man and then say to God, can you do this or do that? To pray is to admit to God that he's the one who changes things. And it seems like Jacob realises it. He's finally humbled before God, before his brother as well, and God has finally become his God. The God of his family has finally become his God. And in verse 9 he says, A God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, a Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy, he says, of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan before, now I'm two groups. It's not because I'm a self-made man. It's not because of my plans, my con jobs, my spotted bits of wood. It's because you've put up with me. You've blessed me. So now at the bottom of my pit that I'm in, save me from my brother Esau. I'm afraid. I'm afraid he'll come and attack me. Verse 12. But you've said, God, that you'll make me prosper and make my descendants like the sand of the sea. And he throws himself on God's promises. And then he spends the night on his own. The self-made man. Verse 23, he he sent everything else across the stream ahead ahead of him and now it's just Jacob with nothing except his staff and there's a symmetry about it, isn't there? 
we began today, just his staff, nothing else, and he's back there again. I wonder if you've ever been in that situation. You've trusted in all your stuff, in your plans, in your job, your physical ability, your home, your, your family. You were doing nicely, thank you very much. You're feeling pretty proud with yourself. But, but then something happened and, well, it all disappeared. Maybe unemployment or illness, financial deal gone bad, divorce and everything that you trusted in was stripped away and you were left humbled and broken with a staff in your hand on your own. Except Jacob's not all alone because suddenly, verse 24, there's someone wrestling with him and it goes on all night and let's be honest, it's one of the weirdest scenes in the Bible and I can't explain what's going on. At a best guess, it's an angel who represents God, but, you know, I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. But in a way, it's a kind of explanation, a picture, a metaphor for Jacob's life. Jacob's humble prayer. They wrestle. The man can't overpower him. He touches his hip, seems to dislocate it. Jacob clings on and the man says, let me go, it's daybreak. Jacob says, I won't until you bless me. I'm holding on for your blessing. The man says, what's your name? Jacob, heel grasper. And the man says, verse verse 28, not anymore, your name will be Israel. No more grasping because you finally get it. Israel, because you've struggled with God and overcome. And that's his name from now on, struggler with God. The name that passes down to the whole nation, a nation of people who struggle with God. Now, I I don't know exactly what's going on. Jacob seems to be in the dark as well, but he, he does know somehow he's been face to face with God and he's kept at it and he's held on It's almost as if his prayer at this point in his life shows that he's come to the end of his own resources, he's finally learned what it means to hold on to God's promises. And that's been the wrestle for 20 years. Uh, Wrestling with God. And so verse 30, he calls the place Peniel, face of God. And he limps away into the new day. You can The sun's rising. You can picture the movie scene, can't you? Somehow a broken but a better man to face his brother with his 400 warriors. I wonder if that's a point you've got to. You've done the struggling, you've done the wrestling, you've done the grasping and and maybe, like Jacob, You're humbled and limping, but trusting. Humbled, limping, but trusting. I wonder if that's you. It's not a bad place to be. The reality is, we may not see visions or wrestle with men who in some way represent God, but we do have it far better than Jacob. 
The New Testament says meeting with God is far easier and clearer. We're not grappling in the dark. We've got God's revelation of himself in his son. John's Gospel, chapter 1. Jacob calls the place Peniel because he's come face to face with God but in John's Gospel, chapter 1, we come face to face with God as well. Chapter 1, verse 18, John says to us, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. God has become flesh so that people can see him face to face in the person of his son Jesus. God has become knowable, not a dream that vanishes when you wake. He's become knowable in the word, become flesh. And Jesus himself picks up this Jacob story at the end of chapter 1 of John, this stairway from heaven. He's calling his first disciples and Nathanael is amazed at Jesus. And uh, Jesus says to Nathanael, forget the stairway, John 1, 51, I tell you the truth, you, Nathaniel, shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. By which he means I'm the stairway. I'm the connection between heaven and earth. I'm the one that the Father is using to bring about his purposes. It's much easier for us than Jacob. But at the same time, The point you've come to is exactly the same as Jacob because Jesus says to us, if you want to know God, just like Jacob, you need to humble yourself. You need to come to the end of yourself and come to me. Don't come as a self-made success story. Come humbled in heart. Jesus says, blessed are the humble and broken, blessed are the hungry and thirsty, blessed are the poor and the weak, because I am the one who will lift them up. Turn to me. If you haven't made that connection with God, if you haven't climbed the ladder or received Jesus who is the ladder, maybe it's time to come limping home to the God who made you, who called you, who's promised wonderful things for you. Come home to the place where heaven and earth meet. Come home to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the the example of Jacob. Uh, We think of many of our members here who who have been through that struggle, who are limping. We pray that in some ways they would follow the example of Jacob, that they would hold on to you. They would long for your blessing. We thank you that in Jesus uh, we can find you simply by trusting him. He is the way and the truth and the life that all who believe in him come to know you, the Father. And we thank you for Jesus. Amen.